Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Immune-Based Advances in Gastric, Esophageal, and Gastroesophageal Junction Cancers is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Recent immunotherapy approvals for gastric, esophageal, and gastroesophageal junction cancers have transformed the treatment landscape. We now have more options and are able to achieve better outcomes for some patients. Do you know how to incorporate newly approved regimens and data into your practice? This is CME on ReachMD. And I'm Eric van Kutzen, working in Leuven, Belgium. And here with me today are Dr. Elizabeth Smith from Cambridge, UK, and Dr. Sunny Kim from Colorado in the US. Hello, thank you for having me today. Hi there, thank you for having me today too. So let's get started. Dr. Smith, uh, Lizzie, uh, to set the stage uh, for this uh, chapterized course, what do we need to know about the principles of biomarker testing? Biomarkers are really critical in oncology. We generally divide biomarkers into two types, prognostic biomarkers, which are really telling us intrinsically how a tumor might behave, and predictive biomarkers, which really tell us how a tumor will respond, for example, to a particular treatment. So, for example, we could take MSI, or mismatch repair deficiency, and it's a prognostic biomarker in patients with resected early-stage colon or gastric cancer, because those patients have good survival. And it's also a predictive biomarker, because it predicts that those tumors will respond respond well to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, when we think about biomarker testing, we generally think about looking at the tumor, for example, using tools like immunohistochemistry for proteins or NGS, uh, sequencing for either single genes or patterns like MSI. We also have uh, biomarkers which are in the, uh, in the germline. So, for example, uh, DPYD testing for 5-FU toxicity or UGT1A1 for renatecum. Uh, when we think about the principles of biomarker testing, we want to know about the sensitivity of a biomarker, how good is it detecting something that's there, the specificity, the positive predictive value uh, for response, for example, with PDL1, or the negative predictive value. So it's a complex area, but really important for predicting survival and uh, response to treatment in oncology. Thank you, uh, Lizzie. Dr. King, what can you tell us about uh... PDL1 uh, and HER2 overexpression? Yes, definitely. So, PDL1 is a protein that we can stain for in gastric and esophageal cancers. The score we use is something called the combined positive score. And this is defined by the number of PDL1 staining cells in the tumor and the immune cells um, divided over the total number of viable tumor cells. And that's multiplied by 100. And that's how you come up with the, the, the score. We know that the higher the score, the more likely immunotherapy agents such as PD-1 inhibitors like nivolumab and pembrolizumab will be effective. Uh, there was a first-line study for gastric and GEJ cancers, Checkmate 649, which showed that with a pd one score five and higher, uh, nivolumab was associated in combination with double chemotherapy with an improved survival rate compared to chemo alone. Similarly, in a study, Keynote 590, 
we saw that the addition of pembrolizumab to double chemotherapy in pdl one CPS 10 or higher was associated with improved survival. Uh, just be aware that these two studies did use different pdl one assays, but generally, the higher the score, the higher likelihood there'll be a response to chemoimmunotherapy. With HER2 overexpression, this is overexpressed in about 20% of gastroesophageal cancers. HER2 overexpression is higher in the gastroesophageal junction and the gastrocardia compared to more distal gastric cancers. And we also see it more overexpressed in the intestinal subtype versus diffuse subtype. Interestingly, there is a considerable overlap between PDL1 expression and HER2 overexpression. Um, in one study, it was 85%. And that's that makes combined HER2-directed therapies and immunotherapies very compelling combinations. So thank you. That's all uh, very important and relevant information. And on top of that, we can say that on top of uh, testing for PDL one and HER2, MSI, MSS testing is uh, also extremely relevant. Although, however, only around 3% of patients with metastatic gastric adenocarcinoma uh, do have an MSI high or deficient mismatch repair tumor, uh, this uh, is um, indeed important because it, it may have profound implications also for the further treatment options. So her two PDL and uh, testing and MSI uh, testing are important. And in the future, there may be some emerging biomarkers that are coming through uh, because we now have some agents uh, indeed that are under um, evaluation that are in, still investigational in gastric cancer that uh, target patients with a tumor that overexpresses clodinating 2 FGFR. And if uh, these tri ongoing trials uh, would show a positive effect of the addition of uh, uh, the targeted agent uh, in combination with chemotherapy, then we, we have to broaden our panel of uh, markers that we test for. So this is um, important uh, for, uh, for the future outlook and treatment recommendations um, that, uh, that we want to do. Um, and in chapter two, um, we will uh, be discussing current treatment recommendations for metastatic gastric esophageal uh, and G-junction cancers. So stay tuned. Welcome back. We were just talking about biomarker testing, and now we are going to discuss treatment focused on evidence-based guideline recommendations for metastatic gastric G-junction cancers and esophageal cancer. So Sonny, what uh, do evidence-based guidelines recommend for the treatment of metastatic gastric and G-junction cancers? The way I first divide it is between HER2 positive and HER2 negative cancers. Uh, so for HER2 negative cancers, we start with the double chemotherapy, which is our go-to, a uh, fluoropyrimidine and a platinum agent. And for tumors with a higher PD-L1 score, we would add a PD-1 inhibitor based on uh, Checkmate 6 for 9 and Keynote 590, where they looked at nivolumab and pembrolizumab, respectively. We know that the higher the PDL1 score, the better chemoimmunotherapy works. In the US, uh, the FDA has approved the addition of PD1 inhibitor without restriction. However, NCCN does recommend that a PD1 inhibitor be added for tumors that have uh, a PDL1 score of at, at least 
one. EMA has more strict guidelines where they require a PDL1 score of five or higher for gastric and GEJ cancers to add a PD1 inhibitor, and for esophageal cancers, a PDL1 score 10 or above. For patients with HER2 positive disease in the US, the FDA did approve adding pembrolizumab to chemo plus trastuzumab. And this was based on interim results from Keynote 811, which showed an improved overall response rate with the addition of immunotherapy. We are still awaiting final survival data from that study. And really the decision to have a patient receive second line and beyond treatment is based on the performance status. As we know, many of these patients can clinically decline rapidly. And so the decision to give them second line treatment is really based on the patient's performance status, just a discussion about what to expect in terms of survival with second line and beyond therapy. Options for her two negative disease include arenotecan, Ramacirumab, which targets the VEGF R2, paclitaxel or docetaxel, and uh, more recently, trifluoridine to paracel. For HER2-positive disease, after a long history of not being able to successfully treat these patients, we have trastuzumab durexetecan, which is antibody drug conjugate, and this is an option for patients with HER2-positive disease in the second line and beyond setting. Thank you so much, Sandy. Uh, that is clear. And uh, Dr. Smith, uh, what are the data telling us about her two targeted antibody drug conjugates, or in other words, the ADCs? Thanks, Eric. Well, I think that there's a lot of excitement around ADCs, uh, particularly initially in the second line setting, as uh, as Sunny just mentioned. So just to recap, an ADC targeting her to, for example, trastuzumab darxtecan or TDXD for short, is a trastuzumab-like antibody with chemotherapy attached to this, in this case, darxtecan, which infiltrates then into the tumor cell. And you've got eight molecules of chemotherapy attached to a single trastuzumab molecule. So you've got a lot of effect on the tumor, but less effect systemically, hopefully for the patient. And what we see also with TDXD is a bystander effect, which means that that chemotherapy leaks out into the surrounding tissues within the tumor and also eliminates cells which are not HER2 positive. That's really important in gastric and esophageal cancer with HER2 positive because we know that HER2 expression is heterogeneous, meaning that each cell does not express HER2. So the studies that have looked at trastuzumab darxtecan so far, the DESTINY series of trials. The first trial that yielded a license in Asia and the US is DESTINY Gastric 01. In that study, patients who'd previously been treated with chemotherapy and trastuzumab were randomized to either TDXD or standard of care chemotherapy. And what we saw in that study, which was an Asia-only study, was that patients had a response rate of around 40%, a median overall survival of 12 months on TDXD, which was substantially better than chemotherapy. So this led to the Asian and US license. But, you know, often uh, we see different responses in Asian patients than we do uh, in non-Asian patients in gastric cancer trials. So I think those results were rightly needed to be validated in another trial. So we have a study called Destiny Gastric 02, which we've recently seen the results of and updated results at ESMO 2022. And in that study, we had non-Asian patients, so US, European patients, who were previously treated with chemotherapy and trastuzumab for HER2-positive gastric cancer 
they had a biopsy before they were treated with trastuzumab deroxtecan in this non-randomized study. And that's important because we know that about a third of patients lose expression of HER2 on their tumor after trastuzumab. And we think there's probably less value in treating those patients with trastuzumab-directed therapy in the second-line setting. So in Destiny Gastric O2, in the updated results, we saw a response rate of 42%, and again, a median overall survival of more than 12 months, which is really excellent when you compare it to the current standard of care, which is chemotherapy or chemotherapy and ramasuramab. Uh, it's not a registration trial in Europe. We do have an ongoing registration trial, which is Destiny Gastric 04, and that's comparing trastuzumab deroxtecan to the standard of care, which is paclitaxel and ramasuramab. So that's currently recruiting, and we look forward to that, really showing, hopefully, that this is an excellent option for patients in future. We do also uh, have ongoing studies in the first-line setting, which are exploring combinations of TDXD with various different chemotherapy drugs and immunotherapies, hopefully moving towards a first-line trial in future. All very important information, and so it shows that the field is moving, and indeed it shows that biomarkers are extremely relevant to test the HER2 testing, PDL testing. Uh, there are slightly different views, as you've heard already, uh, between what European oncologists or what EMA has approved for, uh, for the, at least uh, for the checkpoint inhibitors for nivolumab, uh, more restricted label uh, uh, compared to the US, a more broad label uh, in, in the setting future research will help us to clarify some of these aspects uh, uh, clearly uh, in the setting. And that's important. And with that, we can uh, really indeed uh, make our NCCN or ESMO uh, recommendations and guidelines uh, for as well uh, two targeted agents. And Lizzie also has mentioned uh, some of the important aspects on the trastuzumab deruxetican. We have also the data in our two positive patients of pembrolizumab in combination with trastuzumab and chemotherapy, showing an, a clearly higher response rate in the Kinoid 811 study. That's not yet approved in Europe, that's approved in the US. We are waiting final results uh, on looking at PFS and OS uh, from Kinoid 811, looking at the efficacy of trastuzumab, pembrolizumab in combination with chemo compared to trastuzumab chemo alone in this setting. And then there is a couple of, there are a couple of new HER2 targeted agents also that may help us to uh, uh, to shape uh, these treatment algorithms. Um, so thank you for uh, sharing this important information. In chapter three, we will be discussing future treatment considerations. So stay tuned. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Eric Frankensen from Leuven, Belgium. And here with me today are Dr. Lizzie Smith uh, from Cambridge, UK, and Dr. Sunny Kim from Colorado in the US. We're discussing immune-based advances in gastric, gastroesophageal junction, and esophageal cancers. Welcome back. Now that we have discussed treatment recommendations, let's shift our focus to the future and consider what's in store for us and for our patients with gastric, G-junction, and esophageal cancers. So Dr. Kim, uh, what are we headed uh, with immune uh, oncology treatments? 
So it is quite an exciting time um, now that we've had multiple first line and adjuvant studies showing benefit of um, immunotherapy. Um, there are a number of studies underway exploring uh, first combinations with IO and then, of course, really novel immunotherapy agents. Um, in the realm of combinations with uh, known agents, um, you had mentioned FGFR2B. Um, there's an antibody, bimerituzumab, that targets that. They're looking at bimerituzumab in combination with a checkpoint inhibitor and chemotherapy in the first-line setting. Um, other targets, uh, like HER2, uh, there is tucatinib, um, which is a small molecule inhibitor of HER2, and that's also being studied in combination with chemoimmunotherapy. We did receive some preliminary safety and efficacy data um, looking at a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, linvatinib, in combination with chemoimmunotherapy as well. It seemed to be tolerable and with um, some promising activity, but of course, we'll have to see how the larger study um, pans out. And then um, uh, there is a, another drug, DKN01, which targets the, the wind signaling um, pathway. And um, that's also being studied in combination with um, chemoimmunotherapy. In terms of where we're headed towards, um, you know, bispecific antibodies have been talked about a lot, especially in the hematological malignancies. And that is also a growing area of, of evaluation in, in gastric and esophageal cancers. Um, bispecific antibodies, uh, they attach to two different antigens simultaneously. Um, as an example, there's one where we have a bispecific antibody targeting clodin 18.2, which is a very promising biomarker, as mentioned previously, which can be overexpressed in gastric cancer. And then another part that targets uh, 41BB, and that is a potent stimulator of T cells and NK cells, um, hopefully producing a robust anti-tumor effect. That's undergoing clinical trial investigation right now. And then CAR T cell therapy is, and, and solid tumors, is becoming a reality, fortunately. <clears throat> CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor, and it involves re-engineering our own T-cells to identify a protein of interest. Um, and in the, the case of a recent presentation in ASCO, it was also targeting Claudin 18.2. And we saw some initial safety and efficacy for this therapy. And the, the promising um, initial response rate was almost 60%. Um, but this was in just a handful of patients. So we'll have to see how that, that pans out in the future. But overall, um, we're seeing a lot of trials with combinations with known immunotherapy drugs and then more novel ways for us to target the immune system. Very interesting information, uh, Sunny. Uh, Lizzie, um, what else do you have to add of new directions? I think that uh, Sunny has covered most of those. I think really important for us to understand with these novel combinations, for example, FGF42B, Cladin18, uh, other targets like second generation targets like TIGIT, what is the immune context of these tumors? So for example, in using a PD-1 inhibitor with an FGF4 inhibitor, does the tumor need to be FGF42B and PDL1 positive for maximal efficacy? And I think that's important, especially when we'll probably be considering double antibody therapies in future, which have a financial toxicity as well. So I think the late stage is well covered there. What I'm really excited about is moving these into the earlier stage setting. Uh, hope at the moment using perioperative chemotherapy and surgery, we cure a maximum of 50% of our patients. So, so it's, it's, uh, it's, we want to do better. Uh, so there've been a number of studies that have combined uh, checkpoint inhibitors with chemotherapy. Uh, the first results of these, we've seen the AIO-Dante 
case study, which was atezolizumab and FLOT, and what we saw was, in complete, was complete pathological responses were improved in patients, as you might expect, who express PDL1 at high levels. So there are a number of different studies that we're waiting on. For example, Keynote 585, a larger uh, uh, cohort from AIO Dante, which will now go to a phase three, and the Matterhorn study. So those are going to inform our practice in the perioperative setting in future. The other group of patients who I'm particularly excited about would be MSI tumors. I think that we should see a registration trial in the first line for a chemotherapy-free option. For example, perhaps with a PD-1 CTI-4 antibody, there are novel combinations emerging, but also operable MSI tumors. So we've seen the results of the Niani Pegasus study, which was a French study, in which patients with operable MSI tumors are treated with neoadjuvant uh, nivolumab and ipilimumab. 60% of those patients had a pathological complete response those patients went on to surgery. But the next step is really whether these patients need to be operated on at all. And that's going to be evaluated in trials in future. So that's a group of patients where we could, in fact, move to a surgery-free option, uh, which is very exciting. Thank you so much. Um, so the, the bottom line message is that really we have a society to invest in research to understand much better um, the, the, the role of these different biomarkers, the role of these different agents, uh, so in order that we can improve the outcome for patients. And as Lizzie said, also moving this also from later lines of treatment towards the neoadjuvant and perioperative setting, because if you can show that in this uh, setting, uh, uh, these um, targeted agents uh, 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 increase the efficacy of uh, a perioperative chemotherapy um, in combination with uh, with an operation, then we will be able to cure more patients. Uh, and gastric cancer remains a very frequent uh, problem. Um, we need really to improve on the global um, survival rates and, and we need to cure more patients. And uh, in that knowledge, investing in, um, in research and, in, and the increase in depth knowledge may help us uh, to do that, uh, really. So in chapter four, we will be discussing regional considerations in testing and treatment. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We just looked at what the future may hold for gastric, G-junction, and esophageal cancers. Now let's talk about what testing and treatment look like in different regions. And it's good that we have an international panel. And so I want to ask the first question to uh, Lizzie uh, from Cambridge in the UK. How does the global incidence of these cancers vary? Oh, thanks. That's a really interesting question. And I think that, so if we think about gastric cancer in general, this is a cancer which is very, very common in East Asia. Uh, and for that reason, patients in East Asia, for example, Japan and Korea, frequently undergo screening for gastric cancer. And those cancers are detected early and those patients have surgery uh, in those countries. Gastric cancer, in contrast, where I work and perhaps where you work, Eric, is less common than junctional adenocarcinoma, tumors of the GE junction. So that has a different 
uh, epidemiology and etiology. We know it's associated with kind of a more Western lifestyle and, uh, and uh, for example, uh, virus esophagus and reflux, 70% of what I see are junctional adenocarcinomas. Unfortunately, at the moment, we don't screen for that, although we're moving towards developing screening tools that are not endoscopy, for example, cytosponge that can be used in a GP surgery. Uh, so it's not so much the histology that differs by region, rather, but sort of the site of the cancer. And the site of the cancer really does impact uh, on the diagnosis uh, and on the treatment. So when we see tumors in Western countries, non-Asian countries, these junctional tumors, unfortunately, tend to present quite late because we don't have those screening programs. So patient might present with dysphagia, they undergo an endoscopy, and sadly, only about 50% of patients are able to have a potentially curative surgery. A lot of our patients are diagnosed at a late stage. In terms of the variability in testing, I'm not sure that we should see a variability in testing. We do see variation in what's uh, in the licensing situation, for example, FDA versus EMA versus uh, Japan, uh, Korea, other Asian countries. But I think all of the underlying biology of these cancers is very similar. If we think of gastro gastric adenocarcinoma, not the diffuse type, but really the chromosomally unstable subtype, intestinal type, as Sonny mentioned before, it's really a biological continuum between the lower esophagus, the GE junction, and the gastric, and the, those gastric cancers. So the chromosomally unstable, most of them are p53 mutant. We see about 20% to be positive for HER2, although that is more common at the junction. We see three to five of a percent of advanced gastric cancers being mismatch repair deficient and although that's more common in distal tumors it's also present in tumors at the junction so even for those junctional cancers we need to test for mismatch repair deficiency and i'm not aware of massive differences in pdl1 score between asian and non-asian patients so if i had a message the message would be gastric cancers more common in east asia although probably make up 40 to 50% of tumors in Europe. Uh, junctional tumors, more common in Western Europe, the US, Australia, but the biomarker testing should be universal. Uh, thank you, Lizzie. All very interesting aspects. Uh, Sunny, can you expand upon the variability of histology by region that Lizzie just mentioned? Similarly to what you're probably seeing in Europe, um, a lot of the gastroesophageal cancers uh, that I treat are, are mostly at the junction, the GE junction. Um, and a lot of this is due to, unfortunately, these Western habits, um, obesity, GERD. Um, and uh, we don't see a lot of squamous cell cancer in the US as these are typically associated with um, smoking and drinking and smoking has really fallen out of favor in the US. Um, but being able to practice in the US, it's a very diverse population. Um, I see patients from really all over the world and depending on what city you practice in, uh, I've, I've, uh, most of my patients are actually East Asians and from Central South America. Um, and those patients typically have more distal gastric cancers. And then um, one thing I did want to <clears throat> touch upon was uh, we there was some talk about variability of testing. I agree that um, testing should probably not be variable. Um, the MMR testing, uh, the HER2 and the PDL one are, is pretty standard. I think it's important that we really do focus on making sure we capture the patients who have MMR deficient tumors because there was recently the pembrolizumab EU approval um, for MSI high mismatch repair deficient gastric cancer. Um, this was 
uh, already approved in the U.S., and um, this is for patients with second line and um, beyond treatment, eligible for second line beyond treatment. Um, and in, in the study, uh, we found that patients with MMR-deficient gastric cancer, those patients um, had a 30% response rate um, in the second line beyond setting, which is quite notable um, compared to standard chemotherapy or chemo plus ramucirumab in the second line setting. So um, it's important to identify these patients as soon as possible so that they can be offered immunotherapy. What's nice is that with these first line chemo immunotherapy approvals, um, hopefully we are capturing a lot of these patients, but really these uh, immunotherapy approvals probably should be moved to the first line setting for them MMR deficient and MSI high uh, gastric cancer. Thank you. Um, well, this has certainly been a fascinating conversation, and we can uh, summarize this with a couple of uh, takeaways, uh, key takeaway messages. Uh, one, every oncologist has to understand the relevance of biomarker testing. Today, in these cancers, MSI, MSS testing, HER2 testing, MPDL testing is uh, important. Other emerging biomarkers are coming through. And we see a whole new armamentarium of new agents or two targeted agents, even oncology agents that we are able to use and that improve the outcome of patients with metastatic disease. And hopefully, after uh, we, we see some uh, uh, studies uh, also in, uh, in resectable disease in more early stages. So progress is clearly being made in, uh, for patients with uh, gastric T-junction and esophageal uh, cancers. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank both Dr. Lizzie Smith and Dr. Sunny Kim for joining me and for sharing their very valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion. Thanks for having me. That was a really interesting discussion on gastric and gastroesophageal cancer. Hope to see you again sometime. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash innovations in oncology. Thank you for listening.